Welcome to the TAGT Podcast. Come along as we work to connect the GT community and explore new ways to meet the unique needs of gifted individuals. This is the TAGT Podcast. This podcast was recorded at the TAGT Annual Conference, GIFTED 21. Hello and welcome to the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Fluche. A special thank you to our sponsor, Renzuli Learning. Check them out and get your free trial at renzulilearning.com. Today we're chatting with Dr. Stephanie Boyce. Dr. Boyce is an edupreneur driven by her passion to reshape the educational landscape by making culturally responsive teaching a way of life. For the last decade, Boyce has focused her studies and work on matters of racial justice and equity for historically marginalized people with a focus on educational spaces. She currently serves as the Chief Education Officer of Stephanie Boyce and Associates, LLC, the parent company of The Fresh Classroom, professor and director of the writing program at Paul Quinn College, and lecturer of African American Studies at the University of Houston. Welcome here today, Dr. Boyce. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. I appreciate you. It's an honor. Uh, So let's get this started. All right. As CEO and founder of The Fresh Classroom, uh, why do you think the message of, as you state on your website, a culturally responsive classroom that is fun, relevant, engaging, standards-based, and incorporates high-level thinking, why do you think that's an important message for GT educators to embrace? That's a great question. I think it's important for GT teachers for the same reason why it's so important for our general ed teachers, Um, and that's simply because if we take time to really plug in to students' interests, their background knowledge, their um, ways of understanding and knowing, even when those ways are kind of different from what we're used to, I think we have an opportunity to tap in and bring more students in, um, in a way that is authentic and really um, engaging, unlike anything we've seen traditionally. So there's authenticity there. Uh, it's, it's going back and bringing more students in. Um, getting some time to check out the fresh classroom was, was really fun for me to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that fresh classroom and what you're doing, the great work you're doing there, help educators kind of begin that process for themselves? Well, I think uh, one way is that it, it starts to reshape the way that we approach students and the student and teacher dynamic. And it's really mind-boggling for some people to think about our classrooms as a place where students have autonomy, Mm. um, where students are not empty buckets that come to be filled, but they're filled buckets that come to get even more poured into them. Um, And so sometimes, especially when brilliance looks or sounds different than what we've been told it is, uh, teachers have to be trained to understand and looking through a new lens at the same kids, but with a new lens to understand, oh, just because a a student talks a certain way, dresses a certain way, looks a certain way, or comes from a certain place, doesn't mean they have less brilliance necessarily. It just may mean that I have to lean into understanding them, their cultural nuances a little bit Mm -hmm. more in order to tap in and see the potential that a student has um, to do all kinds of greatness. So it's super important to know your students and, and kind of understand that they might be bringing a, um, some potential that might be different than what a teacher expected, but, but, but teachers need to have an openness to see that and to serve that. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, and I like to say to build relationships in deep and meaningful ways, mm. um, because on the surface, you know, we like to say that we can, as an educator, look at a child or look at a classroom and easily identify, you know, oh, this kid is gifted or that kid is gifted, or just look at test scores and say, okay, well, these are the kids that scored high, so they must be, you know, advanced or further along than some other kids. But um, I think that's the easy work, right? Like mm-hmm. that's like our kind of surface view and our once over. We look at test scores. We look at, you know, whatever kind of test your school or your state is using to identify, okay, who's scoring higher than other kids their age? And, I, and I'm not saying that's not necessary. There's not a place for that. But I think there's also an opportunity that we miss sometimes to kind of dig deeper if we really lean into building the kind of relationships that get us past the surface into really seeing potential, especially um, when it looks different. I keep saying that because sometimes for teachers, like for instance, I've taught a lot of students that speak um, African-American standard vernacular, right? And so that's a whole nother iteration of the standard English language. (laughs) It's kind of got its roots from the same place. (laughs) But um, I'm able to still hear past, you know, quote unquote, it's not just slang, You know what I mean? It's like a whole other dialect of English. And I'm able to, even when I hear that nuance in how a student speaks, um, I'm not distracted, if you will, by that iteration. Um, So even though I'm showing up as a teacher to teach them how to speak standard academic English, I'm also mindful that just because they may not come to me with that, it doesn't mean that they're any less brilliant in Mm. terms of their critical thinking skills and all the other things that I'm looking at when I'm trying to determine um, what's really there with the kid. Right. So so maybe having an openness to seeing uh, potential, uh, even when a student is coming from a, 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 a maybe a, a norm to them that isn't a norm to you mm-hmm. that you can still see and, and, and take that, all that information in to, to see the potential that that kid has. For sure. That's great. Um, wow. And, and one of the things that I think this connects really well with is the TEA state definition of, of, of giftedness is pretty broad. And I think mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people don't realize that uh, within it, it talks about giftedness and gifted potential. Mm-hmm. And so do we see that? Do we say that, see that relative to students of the same background, age, and experience and to, as well? Um, so I, I, I feel like your message is so uh, such a great connection well, it's uh, to all Well, because that definition those. is so broad. It's like, what, what does this even mean? I think, <laughs> you know, like that's my biggest thing. Um, I love the idea of creating any opportunity and giving every resource to every kid, you know, to pursue whatever it is they need in the space when they come to school. But at the same time, when you put in the definition, the potential of a kid Mm. to do something, I'm like, like, that's a lot. And that puts a lot in my mind on the educators in the building because that potential may or may not be realized by a parent based on the, their resources and opportunities, right? So they may not even see that potential. They might just be looking at their kid and like, hey, this is my kid and this is how they mm-hmm. are, but not from the lens of identifying them as potentially gifted um, because right. they might not have been exposed to the resources and opportunities to even, like I'm a parent and I have a two-year-old mm. and she, in my mind, 
is so gifted, right? <laughs> but here she is, you know, with a mom with a PhD. And I'm going to look at her and every second that I'm with her, I'm analyzing her little actions and her thoughts and how she sees things and does things. And she's going to have me as an advocate right. on her behalf when she steps into any classroom. And, and she's been in school since she was like three months old. Wow. <laughs> right? So it's like every step along the way, reading books, like all these things that we do for her brain development. Um, some students don't have the privilege of that advocacy in a person. And so that's where our educators have to be equipped to be able to see said potential. Otherwise, um, they miss an opportunity, not just in that moment for that grade level where they've not been identified, you know, if they're younger, but all the other opportunities that would have been provided as a result of someone seeing that potential and advocating for those kids. So you as an educator, have moved into that space, as you're describing, for other students, and you have quite a great history and resume of experiences as an, as an educator. And as we said earlier, you're an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. um, which is exciting. And, and I'd love to talk about the Fresh Classroom a little bit, but let's start with, you know, what was it like for you to go through starting your own business, uh, consulting as an educator? Uh, what was that process like? And, and, <laughs> and what do you think other people need to know about going through that? It was a crazy process that I was not looking to even start. I was an instructional coach at the time, and our students' writing scores had started to move in such a way when I took over this position from about 29% to 50% to 60%. The people at the district level, one lady that supervised me particularly said, what is it that you all are doing now that's different than what you did before? And I said, we're just like, you know... We're just making it, like, dope. We're bringing the lessons to life, and we're making – and she's like, no, 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 no. Like, I'm talking about if you had to teach another teacher how to do it, what are y'all doing? She's like, you have to have a strategy. Like, you have to be able to – it's kind of like training wheels. Like, if you were going to put the wheels on another teacher's classroom, what are you doing that can be recreated? And from that conversation I had with her, I started to kind of study and reflect deeply on the work we were doing with students. And those are the things that I that it boiled down to. We were trying to create lessons that were more fun, more relevant to the students, more engaging, but were still standards-based and higher order because we can't leave those things out of the equation. And so I put together this professional development and just quite naturally, as educators do, I started training people at the regional level, state conferences, whoever would have me. Uh, And when I did, it was teachers that would come to me afterwards and say, my school needs to have this training. People need to be talking about this where I'm teaching. And so for me, the beauty of my process as an entrepreneur was at the bequest of teachers, which was important to me. Because where I'm from, I don't know about the rest of you all listening, teachers are not requesting any additional professional development. They are tapped out. They don't want to be bothered. So um, it was my greatest honor that my business was born out of the request of teachers that were saying, hey, I'm emailing my principal right now. She wants to know how much you charge. And I was like, charge? I'm just trying to help people. And my business kind of was born from there. That's amazing. And, And I appreciate kind of continuing the advocacy a journey here in your story that that you had a, an administrator pour into you a little bit to say, hey, how can this work? Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of as you're an, an advocate for your child and ask, we're asking teachers to be advocate, advocates for kids who, mm-hmm. who maybe don't have that at home. It, right. Just the power of advocacy always strikes me when we hear these conversations. Yeah, it, it's, it's powerful. Mm-hmm. So, so what, 
Why do you think uh, the Fresh Classroom, let's talk about that a little bit here. Mm-hmm. That's the, the videos are great and very fun. We got to check them out on your <laughs> website earlier. Um, tell us a little bit about what that is and, and why you think that's so helpful for educators. The Fresh Classroom is helpful to educators because it walks teachers from theory to practice. So as a teacher, I got a lot of PD. Sometimes it was like, okay, this sounds good. And it might even be intriguing to me as a teacher or just as a thinker because I am a thinker. And I like to think about things. I like to be pushed outside of my comfort zone. I like to think, okay, I'm pretty good now as a teacher. But, like, how can I be better? You know, if I had, let's say, 90% of my kids passing uh, when they were taking, what was the test before? The TOS test. Right. Going back. Star. Star. No, we took the TOS test. I'm old. We took the TOS test. Tax test. And then... The kids did the tax test before STAR. Yes. So if 90% of my students are passing, for some people, they're like, you know, we're doing great. We're cruising. I'm like, no, how am I keep missing these 10%? So for me, the training had to go from this is this theory around how, how can we become more culturally responsive to students? And then what does that look like in the classroom? That's the biggest part of the training. What we go through, like, for instance, the F is for fun. And then we give you some things you could do tomorrow to up the fun factor in your class. And then I'm going to share with you some examples from the field that you get up and do and experience as a student. Uh, And so this idea that professional development should mirror what we want teachers doing in the classroom is something that was apparently (laughs) mind-blowing. But I'm just like, this is modeling best practice, right? And that's what it all boils down to, what's best practice. That's what that administrator at Central Office was asking of me. What's the best practices that y'all are implementing with fidelity now? Mm. Something's changed here. And we want to capture it so that we can reproduce it. And so really that's what this work is about. We have to go from theory to practical application. And teachers have to see if you say that there's something they should be doing, they need to see that you've done it (laughs) and then how it worked for you. Right. Wow. That's powerful. Okay. So a a few more questions here. I know you've got a unique story, too, of how you became uh, an educator in the first place. Uh, (laughs) Could you share a little bit about that? So many layers to this. Um, <laughs> we'll start I, one at a time. How yeah. I became an educator. Well, I had a very unique experience in schools. A lot of educators that I've met, they were like on a traditional path and they were great kids in school. I was like a terror to a lot of my teachers, right? So I, I like to tell teachers, if you could think of that one student you would like to put out of your class for good, like I was that kid for a lot of my teachers. So I had very um, intense math deficits that manifested themselves as behavioral problems (laughs) for some of my teachers, right? So um, I think that was the biggest part of what led me back to education was having the experiences where I saw opportunities where an adult could have been an advocate for me, could have stepped up and said, something's going on here. They could have got past the fact that I had a sassy, smart mouth or something I've said that kind of made them upset. They could have gotten past the personal kind of, first response to put a kid in their place and said, hey, something's going on here. This is irrational. Um, They could have positioned themselves to really fill in a gap that was there um, because my mom didn't know 
you know, she just knew, hey, I'm not good at math. You're not good at math. This is just not our thing. Do your best. Uh, and so that's kind of one of those things that led me back to education, even when I tried to go into law and make a lot of money, um, was just this gnawing, this calling and this purpose to want to make things better because the educators that did stand in the gap and advocate, they were the difference makers for me, for sure. So part of your desire to do that has been your your personal experience through that. And I'm sure that really resonates as you're working with teachers and, and students who probably connect really well with that. Yeah, for sure. Because I, I know that I was very, I've always been gifted linguistically. And so my verbal, I uh, did oratory and speech competitions and all of that stuff came really natural to me, impromptu speaking and all, Lincoln-Douglas debate. I used to just be like, all the way. Um, but when it came to math and the abstraction of the numbers and letters being next to each other, it was always like, Ugh! and so I'm always mindful of that. Like in my mind, every kid is gifted in some way. And my approach is almost like figuring out a puzzle. Like, can I figure out where your gifts are, where you're more gifted? Um, and then how can I nurture those things while bringing you along on the things, you know, on the other things? And so, yeah. Great. And, and I've got a few more questions here as we start to wind down mm-hmm. the podcast, just to kind of dig deep a little bit more with you and, and get a better feel for you and, mm-hmm. and your beliefs within this. But uh, just a couple of fast questions here. Uh, okay. and just, just real broad here. Okay, let me get ready. Yeah. <laughs> Who in your life has inspired you? When you think of whether it's just personal people in your walk or people more broadly, who's inspired you, especially on this really awesome and unique educational journey you've been on? This is so broad. Mm-hmm. Inspire me like my whole life. <laughs> okay, I'm going to narrow it down to Mary Lindstetter was my English 4 AP teacher. Wow. Um, she was an advocate for us. So she was a blueprint for me in a lot of ways when I went to the classroom. So, for instance, if we did a drama unit, she... I remember it was our first time going to a live stage. Like we went to the Dallas Theater Center to see a real performance of Hamlet. Um, but she took us to eat at, at On the Border first and we had like a sit down meal and then we went to the theater and then she made our learning things an experience. Um, and so she was very inspiring for me as an educator. But the flip side of that was I also saw how culturally irrelevant the content was that she taught us. Um, and so I, as a gifted student would ask her questions like we were doing British literature and I would be like so they don't have any black people in Britain we don't get to read about and she'd be like oh Stephanie and she would kind of like chuckle and let me have a little moment and we would all laugh and move on but as an adult and a practitioner now look back at my little 17 year old brain and it was desiring connection to the curriculum and so but she inspired me in so many ways um in both regards, in terms of what I wanted to do and then what I wanted to be better at as an educator. Fill in the blank. Oh. The best way to foster student potential is? To nurture authenticity. Create a safe space for it and allow them to show up in the fullness of who they are and allow them to reveal it to you without trying to fix them like they are broken. Uh, from your lens and perspective, what are some creative solutions uh, to the needs out there in, in gifted education today? Ooh, that's loaded to the need. That's okay. I think 
one thing that I'd point to is the need for diversity, of course, um, in terms of how students are identified, because I think, like I said earlier, providing any opportunity for a rigorous curriculum and more opportunities to dig deeper um, is good for all kids, but also am mindful that we just have to do a better job at seeing brilliance um, in ways that look and sound different. I think that's the that's the biggest piece for me that I think can be um, a focus for educators is that we just have to be able to see more and pull more students in. Um, I think that's the that's the biggest goal for me. Dr. Stephanie Boyce, it's been an honor to talk to you here today. Anything else uh, before we go? I don't really have anything else. Um, your listeners can find out more at thefreshclassroom.com. Our book just came out. It's called Why Culturally Responsive Education Can't Wait. So The Fresh Classroom, they can find it on Amazon. And I thank them so much for listening to me and for doing this hard work. It's hard, y'all, <laughs> but we're here and we're doing it. So thank y'all so much for having me. Thanks again to our guest, Dr. Stephanie Boyce. We're so glad you could join us. If you're interested in learning more about today's guest and their work, check out the links included with this podcast post. And if you're not yet a member of the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented, we hope you'll join our community by visiting txgifted.org and clicking on the Join tab. Liking what you hear on this podcast? Continue the learning with a TAGT membership. Members have access to a slew of exciting professional learning opportunities, discounts on conferences, Pulse, the TAGT Weekly GT News Brief, TAGT Connect, and so much more. By joining TAGT, you'll also gain access to TAGT's resource platform, Tempo Plus. Explore templates, videos, tip sheets, audio recordings, and so much more at the click of your finger. You'll get all of this for just $70 a year. Not looking to commit to a full TAGT membership just yet? No problem. Enjoy specially curated digital content as an e-subscriber for just $40 a year. Ready to join? Go to txgifted.org to learn more today. Hello and welcome to the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented podcast. I'm your host, Michael Fluche. A special thank you to our sponsor, Renzuli Learning. Check them out and get your free trial at renzulilearning.com. Today we're chatting with Colin Seal, TAGT 2021 advocate for the gifted and founder and CEO of Think Law. Colin Seal was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, where struggles in his upbringing gave birth to his passion for educational equity. Tracked early into gifted and talented programs, Colin was afforded opportunities his neighborhood peers were not. Using lessons from his experience as a math teacher, later as an attorney, and now speaker and author, uh, Colin uh, founded ThinkLaw, a multi-award-winning organization to help educators leverage inquiry-based instructional strategies to close the critical thinking gap and ensure they teach and reach all students. That's regardless of gender, zip code, or what side of the poverty line they were born into. Colin, thanks for being here today. Appreciate it, man. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. We got a few questions for you to get to know you and, and some of the great work that you do. And uh, you're quoted as saying, uh, all of the critical thinking strategies in the world are meaningless if educators don't believe that all students are capable of excellence. Mm. As a 2021 TAGT advocate for the gifted, 
Uh, why do you think your message resonates with so many educators, and, and what do you hope educators draw from your work? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. So when I first started talking, it's all this mess, like just talking all this smack about, hey, man, like, I don't get this. I don't understand how um, I had this experience of teaching during the day and going to law school at night. And um, wouldn't recommend that to anybody. It was a pretty questionable life decision. But when I started doing that and I recognized the power of that mode of thinking for a kid that's been a lifelong underachiever, I was like, why isn't school like this for everybody? Why am I waiting until law school to be challenged to think on my toes and to play all the angles? Because really, growing up in Brooklyn, growing up in a struggle, being in a single parent home, having a dad incarcerated for selling drugs, having to figure out, like, how to not just survive, but thrive in that context, forced me to think on my toes, forced me to play all these angles, but that never had value for me in an academic space. So when I went to law school and taught at the same time, it lit my kids on fire. And the weirdest thing about being in education, which is just so disrespectful, is that the second you leave education, everyone listens to what you have to say about education. Mm -hmm. So when I started getting into this space where I figured, now I'm on these boards and committees talking about, oh, yeah, we really need critical thinkers for the future of work and all these kinds of things. I'm like, well, let's see what's happening. And as I'm walking around, I'm seeing, okay, you got this after-school robotics club. You got this model UN program. You got these gifted programs, these AP classes, these international baccalaureate courses, where at best you're serving 7 to 8% of these school populations. And you look at that 7 to 8%, they don't look like you, Michael. They don't look like me. And at the end of the day, I'm seeing that although we're saying critical thinking is so crucial, we treat it like a luxury good. And sometimes when you say certain truths, people just say, yeah, that's true. And what I realized was it's one thing to say that kind of positive message, all kids need critical thinking. When I start getting more negative, though, and I start saying, you know what? Vote memorization and spoon-fed learning are unacceptable for what we got our kids to get ready for for the 21st century. That negative messaging is like, yeah. Yeah. How can we keep on going forward without teaching our young people not just how to learn stuff and do stuff, but how to actually innovate, how to lead, how to break the things that need to be broken? Because there's anything we can look at today, we can know we got a lot of things that need to be broken. So I didn't know for a fact that when I started this, it would end up leading to over 50 partnerships in the state of Texas and partnerships across 42 states and you know, a book that sold 20,000 copies within a pandemic and um, second book and I don't know, maybe I'll do a Christmas album, a third book. I don't know. <laughs> but these are all the things that I think when, when, when you're striking the right quarter, folks, and you're telling a, a story that's just very authentic, very real and very practical in terms of like the day to day realities of what this means for classroom educators. Um, that's the kind of thing that uh, really sticks to teachers, I think. And when I hear you share about you and your journey and your message here, I keep thinking of authenticity and how important it is and how we need to prepare students in an authentic way, all students in an authentic way, right? Um, and, and I feel like educators probably really connect to this idea that you had this law background that's clearly authentic, that you were able to merge into education because that, that needs to be there. What encouragement do you have to other educators? Or maybe it's not law. Maybe it's uh, some other realm 
to incorporate that into the work that they do to provide authentic experiences? Yeah, um, that's a really hard one. It's a hard one because I'd be lying to you if I said that authenticity is something that came naturally. Um, the truth is, when I first started teaching, I carried an enormous amount of shame with me. Um, embarrassment almost that I grew up in things that I really wouldn't brag about. I wouldn't even mention anything about my dad being incarcerated for selling drugs because it's embarrassing. When I was in law school, I made sure that never came up because my name is Colin Seal, but it's actually Colin Seal Jr. And I have a little brother who's named Colin Seal III, which tells you what kind of guy my dad is, right? Real character. Um, and my dad actually, like, if you look it up on the legal research system, like, he's tried to file his own appeal and all kinds of nonsense. So looking up Colin Seal in a database would show my dad's case, and it was so embarrassing. And it didn't hit me until I got older. And as a student I had, her name was Yasmin, and she founded a really thriving nonprofit in D.C. that raises up scholarship money for kids with incarcerated parents. So here I am at the time, having an incarcerated parent as a teacher. I have a child who has an incarcerated parent as my student, and my inability to be real with myself actually limited my ability to make a very meaningful connection with a student who probably felt just as isolated as I felt when I was going through that same thing. So it's not even all negative. It's not always these negative things. It's like, if you really are in a button collecting, guess what? That's your passion. And maybe kids might not think that's the coolest thing in the world, but they love to see that you are actually a human being with interests that are like real and legitimate. As an educator, think about this. How does it feel when you're here in Texas and you walk into an HEB and your students see you, they're like, oh, you're an HEB? You buy milk? Like, and like they, and they freak out, but it's just like they never get to see the human side of us. So that means we actually have to see the human side in ourselves. And with so many educators, particularly educators that, you know, are working in the gifted space, struggling with matters of like perfectionism and imposter syndrome, authenticity is often like a continuum, right? We're always just trying to thrive and find ways to get there. But, um, just know that if you want to talk about making those results matter with our kids, you can't talk about having an authentic relationship if you're not authentic to yourself to begin with. So if we're, we're expecting to move the needle with students with authentic experiences, authentic learning and thinking, if the teachers are disconnected from that truth, we're, it may not get there. Yeah. And even being able to like share some of the parts of the truth that aren't that pretty, you know, like... I can sit here and talk all the time like, oh, I do all this work on an intersection of equity and instruction, but I could also be honest enough to say, hey, I became a teacher to be a role model to young black boys. I ended up being the only black male educator on my team, and yet I actually referred out twice as many black boys out of my class than anybody else on my team. They were my why, and I was putting them on a bullet train through the school-to-prison pipeline. Why? Some misguided notion that maybe like I had to be extra harsh to them because the world was going to be unfairly harsh. So I had to over prepare them for that world with tough love, even though I was uniquely qualified to show them love, love. Mm. That's not easy to admit to people. But at least if I can be real, then maybe I could help you let down some of your guard. I could help you take off some of that armor and realize, all right, I've got some work to do. We've all got some work to do. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's the work. That's right. Yep. I, I agree. We all have some work to do. 
And, and speaking of your work and kind of your journey, uh, what's next for you? Where do you see you going um, from here, knowing how far you've come? Yeah. Um, so winning this award is like state advocate of the year uh, for, for the gifted. Um, it, it, it really kind of hits me around like, what do we need to do? And I feel like the work I've been doing, obsessing over the last six years over closing the critical thinking gap has been addressing a really important symptom. Um, but when I start digging into the roots of the symptom, I look at some of the work that's coming out in my second book, Tangible Equity, which comes out in April 2022. And if you follow me on Twitter at Colony Seal, you'll see I tweet a lot about like this intersection of gifted education and equity um, at a time where a lot of people are saying, because of equity and because of inequities in gifted, let's eliminate, let's reduce, let's contract gifted programs when I argue that they ought to be expand, expanded. Part of what's coming next is thinking about how do we infiltrate? How do we start to change the conversation where I'm like, you know what, I could care less whether you believe that gifted is real. I'm not having conversation with you about whether this guy is blue or not, right? Here's what I care about. I care about this idea that there are gifted kids in every school. And if we can figure out a way, which I've been doing more and more of, to work with school system as a whole to say, you know what? Look at your day-to-day -day instruction. Look at your scope and sequence. And we're going to figure out a way, using what you already have, to bring in critical thinking, to bring in culturally responsive content that's going to light our kids on fire at least once a week. Whether we're talking about high school chemistry or middle school science, we're going to find a way to make that a part and parcel of what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis so it doesn't feel like one more thing. And what we're going to do is attach ourselves to other important initiatives. Because most schools already have a school improvement plan around more rigor, more engagement, more student voice and all of that. Well, we're gonna give you those tools to do that. Oh, a lot of districts here in Texas in particular do a lot around teacher diversity. Well, I just launched a nonprofit called The B Project, where we're literally paying, I got money to pay educators of color $2,000 a pop to earn their gifted credential. Because I believe fundamentally that if we can change the face of who gets to teach gifted, we might be able to finally shift this very stubborn needle around what it means to be gifted, who gets to be gifted. So that's something that is our next big project that working out with an advisory board of a lot of very prominent and amazing gifted scholars of color. And I mean, honestly, I want to retire by like, I don't know, 45 tops. I don't want to, I want to be cliche. I want to be like, oh, more critical thinking in education? Oh, like more super high expectations? Oh, like more programs where like everyone is represented proportionally? Like no more am I, am I going to a conference? I'm just going to name it, right? I went to a conference this year in Pennsylvania. I was the keynote speaker for their gifted conference. Pennsylvania. Home to cities like Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Allentown. I was the only black person at this gifted conference out of about 400 people. That's actually not that rare, though. I'm in a lot of spaces in a lot of states where when it comes to the gifted population of educators, I'm one of very few, if not the only one. We can't talk about changing the demographics of the kids to reflect the reality, if we don't think about what it means to reflect our own realities, right? It's part of that same kind of reflective spirit about being authentic and calling things what they are. So I plan to get in much more trouble. I plan to <laughs> offend a lot more people 
But I think by doing this and being really bold about it, we'll finally get to a place where like, not only will critical thinking no longer be a luxury good, but we'll no longer have this gap where, although we all know brilliance is distributed equally, opportunity is not. That's what I'm working to change. And with the help of so many amazing partners all across the country, but especially here in Texas, where a lot of this work started to get accelerated, um, I think we're going to do this thing. So a couple quick questions as we start to wrap up here. Um, if I'm a teacher and educator listening to this and I want to get started with critical thinking, your number one tip just to get them started would be what? Ask kids what their gut feeling is about something. Ask them for their take. You want to talk about cultural responsive teaching, stop acting like it's about making up Kwanzaa problems about Tyrone going shopping for Kwanzaa supplies. That's lame. Stop doing that. Okay? Like, make it, like, like give me a chance to make a judgment call about something. Because every time I do a gut feeling, that gut feeling isn't just a sixth sense. It's all my five senses plus my identity, plus my experiences, my values, my education in school, my education out of school, my culture. So these are the things, if I'm able to do this on a regular basis, it gives me such a much more personal connection to the material than just kind of throwing this content down my throat. So figure out, even if it's just in your introduction of your new material, how do you get your kids to make a judgment call, make a guess, take a hunch about what's about to happen next? And lastly, fill in the blank. The best way to foster students' potential is? To stop using the word potential. Potential is trash, okay? Potential is a very fixed uh, 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 notion of like, you know, you got potential energy, sixth grade science, you know, the ball's on a hill. And it's limited to how far it can go based on the kinetic energy because of that potential. Like, the reality is my second grade teacher didn't know nothing about my potential. If she saw me working at the Sprint store, she'd be like, wow, look at him, he reaches potential. Like, nothing's wrong with working at the Sprint store, but like, the truth is teachers, parents, even kids themselves can't actually name their own potential. That's not even our jobs. I can't name my kids' potential. My job is to set the stage for excellence and move out of the way. So I don't know that that two-part combo is something that a lot of us are very comfortable with. So if we really want to talk about this, like, let's set the stage for excellence across the board, whatever that might mean to the child that we're working with, and just move out of the way and let them take over that stage. Remind us one more time, how can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Sure. You can look us up at ThinkLaw, www.thinklaw.us. Follow me at Colin E. Seal on Twitter. I'm Colin Seal on Instagram. Um, you can follow our work at ThinkLawUS um, on either platform. Also, we have a really amazing uh, Facebook group called the Tangible Equity Group, um, Tangible Equity Community. Lots of great ideas. We have hundreds and hundreds of educators on there every day posting amazing stuff and sharing great resources. So that's a great way to keep in touch. Thanks again to our guest today, Colin Seal. We're so glad you could join us. If All you're right. interested in learning more about today's guest and their work, check out the links included with this podcast post. And if you're not yet a member of the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented, we hope you'll join our community by visiting txgifted.org and clicking on the Join tab. Renzuli Learning is proud to support the Texas Association for the Gifted, their podcast and gifted education nationwide. Be sure to visit our website at RenzuliLearning.com and sign up for your free trial to experience firsthand how we deliver a rigorous, personalized learning environment for all students pre-K through 12 and how we align our resources to the TEKS and provide student-driven project-based learning that unpacks the natural passions and abilities in all children.